Welcome to today's conversation in our Collaborative Transformation podcast series, Public Hospital M&A. In our first episode, we covered public hospitals as sellers and why public hospital deals are happening. And in today's episode, we'll dive into the critical business and legal issues encountered by hospital boards, senior leaders, and partners as they move through the transaction process. Joining us again today are McDermott partner, Megan Rooney and Rex Bergdorfer from Juniper Advisory. Megan and Rex, thank you for coming back again for a second round of our podcast series on public hospital M&A. We're going to dive right into some questions that filter off of what we discussed last week. So on the first question, Rex, I wanted to ask you, there are many perspectives and issues that a public hospital needs to address when preparing for a transaction, including things like how to communicate to the hospital's various stakeholders. Who are the key players in this public hospital transaction? Well, they're large in number. Mergers and acquisitions is definitely a team sport. That's what makes it fun. There are people from all walks of life and all professional backgrounds. We have different constituencies with different objectives from locally elected public officials to management to uh, independent hospital board, extending through physicians, employees, unions, and the public. So it's a master's class in logistics, but that's what makes it fun. Our job as advisors, and I think Megan would agree, is to help organize the decision-making process to help each group effectively make a decision that has pretty significant local implications. And doing so requires that you first respect the varied viewpoints of the different stakeholders while not ceding any of the decision-making authority to non-fiduciaries. And I suspect Megan has some explicit thoughts on things like unions and political sentiment. Sure. So I think it's really critical to consider who has the right to approve when you're thinking of the master's class of stakeholders and who are your influencers, right? In these public hospital deals, it may be that you just need the approval of the municipal board. It may be that you need a a referendum and you have to go out to the public to obtain a vote to approve your transaction. So at the outset, it's critical to determine, okay, we have this panoply of stakeholders. Who can really hold this up? Who do we need to get the formal approval of? And then also who can influence the approval And who do we need to make sure are brought along appropriately? So as Rex mentioned, there's the fiduciary approvals, but then there's also the employees, unions, kind of the court of public opinion that you also want to make sure as best you can understand the transaction, understand the value proposition of the transaction, and can become proponents of the transaction instead of detractors. But that can be very challenging depending on the nature of the deal and any other factor. Megan, I don't know about your experience, but it seems as though motivations for business combinations in the hospital industry have changed. It used to be that only distressed hospitals and ones that were acting defensively entered into partnerships. As we've worked with more and more proactive organizations that are kind of aspirational in terms of quality of care they provide and the operating performance, it seems as though the story is a bit easier locally. And particularly if 
hospitals are forward-looking and open in their change. A lot of our clients have been utilizing professional communications firms to message to each of those groups often and in the right setting and way. Absolutely. Motivations are changing. Rex, it also reminds me of something we were talking about off mic yesterday, and that was that we're also seeing public hospitals be the acquirer. They're not always just the troubled organization that needs to be acquired, which I think we talked about that angle a little bit in our last podcast, but we're also seeing them in a position of strength being the acquirer as well. Yeah, that's a good point. The first part of this podcast was focused on local government organizations that were leasing or somehow changing the operations of their system to now where there have been many examples nationally of local government hospitals, counties, districts, cities, etc., are the ones making acquisitions so as to kind of rescue other facilities within their geographies from trouble is that would spell obviously, you know, really bad things for the population. Exactly. Now everyone knows what we talk about in our free time with one another. More hospitals. (laughs) (laughs) We're nerds. What can we say? Megan and Rex, when approaching a public hospital transaction, it's important to identify the stakeholders that can approve or deny the proposed transaction and those that are important to the success of the transaction, but ultimately can't prevent the deal. What should hospital boards and senior leaders do to prepare to educate key stakeholders about the transaction? It's certainly important to help the groups collectively understand why the hospital is considering change and the strategic motivations and imperatives. And so usually prior to any live transaction process, we're asked to spend somewhere between two and six months working with the boards to understand what's going on nationally, regionally, and locally, and to kind of get a common set of understanding. And it couldn't be more important to take that time, honestly, because that is the underpinning of everything else that is going to happen in the deal process that will make it successful. So the time that the board spends really identifying what its needs are, what its strategic and charitable objectives are, and making every decision through that lens is going to make the entire process go more smoothly from, say, they're seeking a number of different suitors, figuring out which suitor's proposal is best for them through that lens, communicating those goals and objectives to the community and to the various stakeholders and why what they've decided to do meets each of those objectives, telling the story I think we'll talk about this a little later, to governmental authorities that have the right to approve, including state AGs. That groundwork that Rex is talking about and the time he is spending with boards and that the advisors are spending with boards, I think, cannot be understated. I mean, Rex, I'm sure you've experienced where that's been handled very, very well and where that perhaps could have been improved upon. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is preparing leadership to defend the decision they've made, whether that's at the grocery store or all the way up to the state AG's office. And they will ask, why are you considering a business combination and how are you going about it? And state AG's you know, historically have held two controls over nonprofit hospitals. 
in the context of a merger or acquisition. They, number one, supplement the FTC's review of market power gained through two organizations coming together, and two, opine on the, quote, fairness of terms agreed to. And they'll want to know what options the board considered, how are they sure that they achieved fair market value, and that the terms, conditions, and other points of the contract are reasonable to the local constituents. It's a great point. The AG approval process in many states, it drives the timing of the transaction and can really determine whether or not that deal gets done. Of course, when these public hospital deals, you may also have to do a public vote or get the approval of elected officials. And that's, I think, Rex, when you mentioned the grocery store, I was thinking more of country club, but uh, do have community members that need to defend the decision. And it could have not just personal ramifications of your golf buddy who owns the local such and such company asking you about it, but also if you're an elected official, how does that impact your next election? Right. And we're talking about public hospitals specifically. And in the past and in most all states where we've worked, uh, public hospitals do not report up to the AG and need their approval for a business combination. But there's an interesting exception to that in California with legislative proposal SB 977, which aims to expand the AG's purview over other government bodies, local cities or counties that own hospitals. And we're curious if that's going to be a broader trend and occur in states other than California. So Megan and Rex, building off of that, you're talking about stakeholders that may have or may not have the right to approve a deal, but still require careful consideration. To that end, public hospitals are often one of the largest employers in the community. As with any transaction, employees may be nervous about what the future holds for them. What can be done to calm employees' fears and kind of keep them focused on daily operations? Well, there's a number of things that you can do. And very successfully, we've seen clients do town halls where they message exactly what is happening and perhaps more importantly, what is not happening. Employees can be very fearful about their jobs, about what this means. This can seem foreign to them that this is happening. So it's important to give a very consistent, calming message and timely as well. We've also seen clients send out employee emails as the transaction progresses to keep them educated. Note, however, any employee email that goes out gets sent to the newspaper every single time. So it's incredibly important to be mindful of what are in those documents. And I think that really ties back to some of the things we've talked about already with respect to using your internal communications team or perhaps hiring an external communications firm to help make sure that these communications are spot on. And I think another point in communicating with the employees is that they aren't alone. While when change happens to hospital employees, it may seem very unique, but nearly 80% of standalone hospitals in the U.S. are assessing whether or not they should remain independent. So this is actually incredibly common, and being transparent can be very helpful. Rex, I think Juniper has done some studies about the impact of transactions on employment and had some pretty interesting results. 
Yeah, the hospital industry is different from other sectors of the economy. If you look at business combinations in manufacturing, you know, usually those are motivated by, quote, synergies and efficiencies that can be gained by reducing employee count. And so people that are well-intended sitting on boards of hospitals bring experience from other industries. And the hospital industry is unique in that in almost all cases, the motivations of partnerships are growth-oriented. How can we deliver more care locally, have more doctors, more services, and therefore more employees? We looked at about 25 transactions we worked on between 2010 and 2015 and looked at employment you know, before a partnership and a couple years after and found that overall employment grew by about 11%. It's a very understandable concern that employees have, but I think the two data points we've talked about, number one, that nationally the large majority of hospitals are undertaking partnership considerations. And two, when the dust settles, usually the organization is doing more locally than it did before. So once the board has carefully considered the prospect of a deal and believes there is support to move forward, what happens next? Uh, How do you pick up the deal structure? Well, if you've done one deal, you've done one deal. So there's not a one-size-fits-all deal structure for a public hospital transaction. It really will depend on the, this is a very lawyerly answer, isn't it? It depends on the facts and how that hospital is owned and operated. It may be that the municipality owns all of the assets, owns the real property, and you can do an asset sale, which I think that's probably the most typical and popular deal structure we see in these types of deals. But it may be that the municipality just has a ground lease of the land and the assets are held by another entity. So you really have to do your diligence and figure out how it's currently structured to determine the best way to move forward with the sale or acquisition of the hospital. Brett, what yeah. do you see? Well, you touched on it. You know, classically, sellers want to sell stock as that's a clean and simple way to convey the entirety of their enterprise to a buyer, whereas buyers classically want to buy assets and in doing so seek to carve out certain liabilities that would not pass along to their company in the acquisition. And I think that transaction structure, purchase of assets, is going to be more commonly used in local government settings that have kind of stickier underlying capital structure consideration like pensions or the types of debt that they use to finance the company. Another consideration for local governments is the type of debt that they use to finance their operations. Nonprofit hospitals, faith-based 501c3s, those that are not owned by a municipality, in almost all cases, issue revenue bonds, which pledge only the revenues of the hospital to service the debt uh, that bondholders hold. Local governments, by contrast, use general obligation debt, which is an enhanced set of security that backs the credit with the overall taxing authority of the city or county. So there are some pros and cons to 
becoming part of a government agency. Often they had increased access to capital, but I could see when target hospitals are looking at the politics and bureaucracy involved, maybe not being as enthusiastic with some other options they're considering. And Rex, can you talk to us about some of the complications that can arise with alternative structures? Well, I think it's been shown that the tighter the arrangement and the more ownership and control that is exchanged, the better partnerships work and the more durable they are and the longer they last and the more they're able to accomplish the objectives. But I think looser arrangements are often kind of a baby step toward that. And no, Megan has worked on a number that have involved IT sharing arrangements in that sort of less extreme form of affiliation. Yeah, yeah. this isn't just in the public hospital M&A space, but in the M&A space more broadly, at least before COVID-19, there was a real trend where folks wanted to get a little bit pregnant for looser affiliations as a stepping stone, or maybe they didn't think it was a stepping stone, but it ultimately became one. I think if a looser affiliation is what you're most comfortable with and will help you achieve those goals and objectives that we talked about earlier, again, the lens through which everything that you do in a transaction should be through achieving those goals and objectives, any number of structures help you achieve those goals. So you should consider the different transaction structures broadly and then figure out which ones are really going to work for you. But I think to Rex's point, many times we end up doing two deals when someone's looking at a looser affiliation first. I mean, I guess that's good for the lawyers and the advisors, but really it's best to consider early on what do you ultimately want to do? What are the goals you hope to achieve? And it may be that you need to get comfortable with something that's a little stronger than at first blush you're comfortable with or want to do. And these looser affiliations are also not any quicker or more efficient to get done. They often take just as much time, I think, to negotiate an asset sale or a merger transaction because they're very, very unique. So you think that that's going to be something that gets done with fewer approvals or a little bit faster, that may not be the case. But they're fun to consider. I'm sure, Rex, you know, we're field geeks. You know, it's, it's fun to think about all of those issues and draw the boxes and figure out which way all the dollars and the approvals and the governance go. Yeah, and specifically on IT, as platforms have become increasingly important and expensive, all hospitals are strongly desirous of improving their electronic coordination across physician practices and clinics and the like. And everyone seems to love and want Epic. We've seen a lot of acquirers use their license as kind of bait to incent other hospitals in their region to partner with them and to share their license. And they often use that as kind of a leading way of working together. And I don't think Anyone's acting nefariously, but oftentimes if you dig through the contracts, there are more teeth in there than what you expect for just a licensing arrangement. Oftentimes they have rights of first refusal and bigger ticket terms. And to Megan's point, they often take just as long and are just as complicated to negotiate. 
And Megan, thinking about some of the unique considerations when it comes to drafting the deal documents to memorialize the transaction, what, what kind of suggestions would you have on that front? Well, there's a few things I think that are important for public hospital deals. Again, when we talked about this in the first podcast and a little bit already, things have to be done in the sunshine when you're dealing with a public hospital transaction. So your documents are very, very likely, everything that's being presented to the board, any deal documents are going to become part of the public record. So the way that you draft things and things that you include, it's incredibly important to be mindful of if you want this on the front page of the paper. And you also need to be mindful of how can the way that things are drafted and presented really help you if if you become public. So thinking back to your employee question, it's really important to put in these documents a statement if it's true that there will be no changes, there will be no layoffs, there will be no changes to the employees, if the buyer is going to assume employee contracts, That's good detail to include to assuage fears. The other thing to really think about are your exhibits and schedules. And a lot of time, particularly when you have reps and warranties, you schedule out exceptions to the reps and warranties. So in the reps and warranties, you say everything is perfect except is set forth on this schedule. And if you have a schedule that lists out all of your hairy litigation or it lists out compliance issues, which every hospital has compliance issues, even the best ones do, you really want those to be public. In many hospital transactions, those are listed on schedules all the time. But if it's going to be a public document, you really need to be careful about the types of things that you're scheduling, the way that you're sharing, the information that you need to share to make the best decisions about the transaction, but not necessarily put into the public sphere. So those are things that as a deal lawyer and the drafter of the documents I'm thinking about. But I think Rex, you're probably thinking about maybe more on the buy side, what having some of the deal terms in the public eye can mean strategically. Yeah, I think you're right that you should be prepared for all of the issues in the transaction to be public and covered by the newspaper, including purchase price and value and forms of consideration. One thing we haven't talked about, and I don't think any of us have the answer because we haven't done it yet, but I suspect we'll be confronted with it into the future, is how to contend with COVID-19 CARES Act funding. If a small, struggling nonprofit hospital was the recipient of federal grants to keep the doors open in a, you know, maybe rural facility, and they accepted sometimes large sums of money, very necessary. What happens when a very well-to-do, large and sophisticated public hospital takes them over? How do you handle not just the legality of the funding, but also the PR implications? You know, we've seen HCA and the New York Times touch on these in terms of sentiment and how those will be translated to transaction agreements. I don't know. Well, Rex, I think that means that we have plenty to keep talking about and we can keep podcasting together as these things develop. And we definitely have one more podcast coming to you about the regulatory approval process for public hospital transactions and how to get these done. But I think with all the developments that are happening Nearly every day, we'll always have something fresh to cover together. 
Well, thank you again, Megan and Rex, for the podcast. I'm excited for our next conversation. We'll recover regulatory approval processes and how to successfully consummate a public hospital transaction. Thanks so much for listening. For more insight and analysis about today's changing healthcare M&A landscape, check out McDermott's Health and Life Sciences News blog at healthlifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will, and Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott, Will, and Emery and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of the consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2020, McDermott, Will, and Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott, Will, and Emery is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.